Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher here in New York City, where I am sad to report that my trip to New Jersey did not go as planned. The losing streak is officially in the extended stage. Uh, I played my heart out for four days last weekend, basically firing up every single Planet Hollywood online circuit event and winter online championship circuit, whatever, <laughs> like all the different things they had uh, on offer at WSOP.com. I think I played very well. I had a few very small caches, but mostly just a continuation of the bad luck that was referenced in last week's episode. It's tough sometimes, you know. There were spots where I got it all in with kings against aces for like 85 big blinds, and that sucks. Uh, similarly, ran ace-king into aces a couple of times. Um, you know, I could tell you all the different ways you can lose a poker hand if you want, but I don't think that's why you're tuning into this podcast. I have gone over several of the hands that I played in the uh, solver and with some other players that I trust who sometimes help me with my game. And I'm glad to say that there's really nothing glaringly obvious that I'm doing wrong, uh, either to me or to my coaches or to the solver. It's just, this is how it goes sometimes. And I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast and you play uh, poker with any regularity yourself, you know that this is part of the game. Uh, it's just, you know, it will end at some point. It is an extended losing streak, a downswing, the likes of which I have not seen in many years. But it will come to an end, and I'm hoping that when it does so, it will do so in a big way. So that I can get off of this particular schneid. <laughs> but look, it's uh, it's not fun to spend four days in Secaucus losing 27 of the 31 tournaments that I play. And then in the few that I did cash in, not really have much to uh, show for it when all is said and done. But I don't want you guys to feel sorry for me because I want to tell you a quick little story Uh Around this time last year is when this whole pandemic started and I started taking a few nibbles in the online poker world. Not yet going to New Jersey, not yet signing up for the New Jersey version of WSOP.com, but rather just playing a little bit on ACR. And early on, I had some success and did a few cash outs. And I cashed out into Bitcoin, which I have never sold <laughs> or spent. 
<laughs> and it was at $10,000 per coin back then. So I racked up a little bit of Bitcoin and now it's worth $50,000 a coin as of the moment that I'm recording this on Thursday, February 25th, 2021. So who knows where that price is going or coming, but it more than made up for the uh, losses that I've been sustaining. <laughs> and I'm laughing because I heard Doug Polk say that he would have made more money if he hadn't done the challenge versus Daniel Negreanu because he actually had to cash out some Bitcoin in order to be properly bankrolled for the challenge. And he would have made more money by just keeping it in there. So uh, on a much, much, much smaller scale, I am a living embodiment of the buy and hold strategy that is so important for long-term cryptocurrency investors. But the only reason I even am a cryptocurrency investor is because my government won't let me play online poker legally in my state. So thank you, I guess, <laughs> government, for restricting me and forcing me to use this other type of currency, which has basically quintupled in the last 12 months. But enough about that. I want to get right to strategy today. I have all of these hands that I played during my binge in Secaucus, and uh, I picked out two that I thought were interesting because they touch on similar themes, at least with regard to which streets are better for bluffing and which streets are better for value betting. Uh, without revealing too much about the hands, uh, I will tell you that they are not from the same tournament. I've selected two different hands, and the first comes from a larger buy-in, a $320 Planet Hollywood online circuit event. I don't know why they called it that. No one was at the Planet Hollywood Casino uh, at the time of this tournament, there is not live poker at that casino as far as I know right now. But like I said last time, they're just running out of names. So now they're starting to name the online events after casinos that they own, which I guess is all well and good. Uh, we're eight-handed right now because we just lost the uh, small blind at our table. So it's not normally eight-handed, but we're eight-handed at the moment. It's kind of early in the game. This tournament, you start with 20,000 in chips, and we have about 16,000 in our stack, and the average stack is about 22,000. So in third position, a reasonable player opens to 760, so that is about two and a half big blinds, and then a terrible player in the hijack calls with 17,000 behind. Now, what's wrong with this player? Why do I say he's terrible? Um, his playing style is too cautious, too passive. Uh, he's tight and fearful. Now, there is some value to being careful in tournaments, especially higher stakes tournaments. Survival is important. You don't want to take too many risks. But this player errs on the side of just being overly cautious. He calls and now it's folded to me with the four of diamonds, tray of diamonds. So four tray suited 
and it would cost me 460 to call. Uh, obviously, four high is not a strong hand, even suited. It's not hopeless, though. And the fact that there is 2140 in the pot and it only cost me 460 to call, that's pretty irresistible. Even to have to be out of position with this terrible hand against two opponents, the fact that only one of my opponents is especially competent, that being the original Razor, I think I'm pretty well priced in to call here. And you know, I'm obviously not planning to lose all these chips if I just make a pair of fours or something. So let's see what happens. We call, and now with 2,600 in the pot, the flop comes five of hearts, deuce of hearts, deuce of spades. So five deuce deuce with two hearts, and hero has the four tray of diamonds. So we flopped an open-ended straight draw. Now, I've talked about this a few times on this podcast. The solvers that are learning how to play multi-way pots are basically telling us that we're not over-betting enough and that we're not donk-leading enough in multi-way pots. I mean, the solver will pretty much have you check to the razor every single time when you are out of position heads up on the flop. But in this case, I have two opponents and I want to be able to lead out when I have a deuce, right? I want to be able to lead out with a flush draw, with a deuce, with other hands that I might want to bet for value, um, possibly pocket sixes, hands like that. We should want to, at least some of the time, bet out. Now, most of us don't do anywhere near enough of that because we pretty much always check to the razor. So this is actually a spot. It seems to me like a spot where... If I bet and get raised, I can pretty much throw my hand away if it's a large size raise and go ahead and call if they're if they raise too small. Uh, the reason why I would be willing to throw it away to a large raise is because I don't have a heart draw and because the board is paired. I could well be drawing dead or even not dead, but very slim. For example, if the original razor has a hand like ace, deuce of clubs, and has flopped trips. Well, now I can't win if I make my straight with an ace, right? So because of all that, and because things can get so ugly, it does feel like a spot where leading out would be fine, and then folding to a big raise. You do have to call when you're getting a really good price if they min-raise or or make a smaller raise. I think you do want to call and try to make the straight, but you have to be careful if you make the straight with the flush card or with an ace. I mean, it's unlikely anybody has a hand like six deuce, right? So we are therefore less worried about making the straight with the six. But the real point is that when you are semi-bluffing into a paired board and you don't even have the flush draw, it's not a crime to bet fold. Donk lead out, and then if there's a lot of pressure, you can throw your hand away and not lose sleep over it because you may have been drawing dead or close to dead, or at least not having anywhere near as many outs as you would otherwise have hoped. So getting out, having that exit strategy on an early street is totally fine. Now, we don't want to be bet folding every time. We don't want to get too exploitable. So you also want to bet some of your value hands that you're not planning to fold, as well as a weak draw like this one. So uh, that is an option. Finding more donk leads is, generally speaking, a good idea. 
uh, for me and probably for you. But I did check. The original Razor also checked. And then the Hijack, who is that cautious player I mentioned before, bets 1200 into the 2600 pot. Let's try to range him here. I'm not sure that this player would do this with two opponents with a draw. So I kind of discount to some extent the likelihood that his range would include hearts like something like Queen Jack of Hearts or whatever with just a naked flush draw here. Um, I think that he's most likely to have a five or maybe a pair like pocket sixes, sevens. They kind of want to protect. They don't really want any more cards to come off. They probably have the best hand right now. So that's what I would expect this player's range to mostly consist of is those kind of value hands like middle pocket pairs that didn't three bet pre-flop and then not that many bluffs. So he, the reason why I think this player is not such a great player is because I don't expect him to have enough bluffs in his range. So when he fires here, I think it's going to be something like pocket sevens, pocket eights, those type of hands kind of feel like the bulk of this betting range. So now it's up to me and I'm in a tough spot here. I mean, I'm getting a little better than three to one on his slightly less than half pot bet. Uh, I have an open ender, but the board is paired and there's also a flush draw possible. And most importantly, the original Razor who chose not to continuation bet on this flop could still wake up with something. And you will see players check Hands like pocket aces uh, and, to a lesser extent, pocket kings on boards like this, particularly when they have a heart. And the reason is simple. They don't want to always have nothing when they check. So you need to have some checking a, a good hand in your range just, again, to for balance and not to be too exploitable. I'm not closing the action by calling. I'm not actually getting the right price not knowing what's going to happen on the next street or even for the rest of this street. So maybe this is just a fold. Uh, it feels odd to think that I should just fold my open ender, but I have such a weak draw. I think folding is actually a good play. Another good play might be check raising. Now the case for check raising is also a little bit muddy because we've already established that the in position player who just fired 1,200 into 2,600 with two opponents, is not known for being a aggressive type of player. He's unlikely to have a draw. We just said we think most of his range will be value hands in the neighborhood of like pocket eights, pocket sevens, pairs that like this flop but didn't three bet pre-flop. So that's kind of what I'm putting him on. And so if I'm going to be able to bluff him off of a hand that strong, on this board, you can rest assured it's going to take at least one more barrel, if not two, to make that happen, if that can even happen at all. So maybe check raising now and then betting and then betting again might be what it would take to get this player to fold a hand like pocket eights on five deuce deuce. So, and also, of course, it would depend on what cards hit on Fourth Street and the river, but. That's why it is muddy. It's easier to check raise opponents who have plenty of bluffs in their ranges 
And at least one of my opponents here does not have enough bluffs in his range. So that makes bluffing him a much dicier proposition. So I think I should fold in retrospect, but I did decide to call and the original razor folded. So we're going to be heads up against this cautious type of guy out of position. And now with 5,000 in the pot, the turn comes the seven of clubs. So our board is now five deuce deuce seven with two hearts. We could lead out here. It's kind of weird doing that. Uh, I'm not really sure what a solver would think of a betting strategy on the turn, having checked and called on the flop. I think that check raising on the turn is a good play against an opponent who could fire another shell as a bluff or with a marginal hand. But against this opponent, I don't think check raising makes a lot of sense because if this guy bets again, depending on the sizing, of course, but if he bets a normal, reasonable amount here on the turn, I think that we can pretty much put him on that same range, pocket eights. Uh, well, pocket sevens right now has a full house. So check raising against a full house is uh, usually not recommended. Um, of course, we don't know exactly what he has, but it's got to be the type of hand that would call from the hijack after a middle position player opened and not three bet. So it does feel like pocket eights a lot. Uh, you know, pocket sevens, of course, less likely now that the seven showed up. But those are the kind of hands I would expect opponent to have. I mean, he could also have nines, maybe tens, right? This is what I'm thinking in the moment. He's got a pair, though, especially if he bets again, which he actually does. Into 5,000, our opponent again bets the same amount, which is 1,200. So now he's betting 1,200 into 5,000. So with 6,200 in the pot, it only cost me 1,200 to call and I still have this open ender. I just figure, why not? We call again, and we're going to the river. Just couldn't resist that price. And so now with 7,400 in the pot, the river comes the king of hearts for a final board of five deuce deuce, seven king with three hearts. My first thought when this card hit was that my opponent cannot like that card. I mean, I've checked and called and checked and called, and now the flush came in. So there's at least some chance that Clayton here in the big blind just made a flush. Also, the way he's played his hand all along, it really feels like a pocket eight, maybe pocket nines type of hand. The vast majority of the time, I think he's going to have a pocket pair. Now, the sizing on the turn is very suspicious. Like, it's usually wrong to bet the same amount on the next street. I mean, of course, there are exceptions, and as part of a big meta strategy, it could be brilliant to do so. But I don't think this player is anywhere near on that level. And so I think that he is betting because he'd like to get some value for his hand, but he's not entirely sure that he has me beat, and he's afraid that I might have a deuce. So now he's got to worry that I have a deuce. He's got to worry that I have a flush. He's got to worry that I have a king, a pair of kings now. So this just feels too good to me. Number one, I want to be able to check call, check call, 
lead with value hands. Like when I have a deuce in my range, when I do make a flush here with this card, uh, when I have a full house of some kind, when I have quads, you know, I'm going to always want to bet the river in those cases, especially against this player who is so unlikely to ever bet a hand like pocket eights when that scare card hits. That king of hearts is very, very ugly to this opponent's entire range with the possible exception of pocket aces, which you will see sometimes like a bizarre slow play. I don't know why, but sometimes these nitty type of players will do that slow play. But I think even then you would have seen a bigger bet on the turn. So I can discount that a lot. I just think that this player, it's rare that you can really narrow a player's range down but I really think that he will often, if not always, have something like pocket eights, pocket nines. Like that is the range and the entire range that this opponent would would play this way. So because I'm basically putting him on pocket eights and because I will often have a flush here or a deuce here or four deuces here or a full house here or at very least a king here, I decided to now spring into action, knowing, of course, I cannot win this pot with four high. <laughs> we have the nut low. So, uh, you know, often the worst hands that you have in your range for a given moment are the best hands to turn into your bluffing range. I think most of you listening to this probably know that, but it feels like a spot to me. I'm going to represent that king. I'm going to represent a heart flush. I'm going to represent a monster here. So I bet 5,500 into the 7,400 pot. And I cannot tell you how surprised I was, how quickly my opponent called with two black jacks. So yeah, you know, I was pocket eights, pocket sevens, because I think jacks is a pretty clear three bet pre-flop. Jacks probably tens, Certainly, 10s are better. I would be 3-betting in his shoes, and I think that the solver would have us normally 3-betting as well. But, you know, like I said, he's a cautious type. I I should have put a few more pairs in his range, but essentially, Jax is the same as 8s, right? I mean, we're looking at, is my one pair good now that the King of Hearts shows up on the end? But he didn't really give much thought to folding, and that could be partly my reputation, although at this particular table, I hadn't been uh, playing too much Clayton ball, (laughs) as one of my friends likes to call my uh, wild and loose aggressive style. I was actually pretty much in line at this table in reviewing the hands that preceded this one, but this opponent just did not want to fold his jacks, and he won a very nice pot off of me because of that. And you know what? This is part of running bad too, isn't it? Right? It's it's when you have a good spot for a bluff and you have a, a perfect scare card to represent and your play is consistent with the hand that you're representing, etc., 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 and you still can't get them to fold when you need them to. So that is part of running bad. The uh, hidden luck in poker, like we all know how much it sucks when you have pocket aces and they get cracked or when you have pocket kings and your opponent ends up having aces like things like that are the luck that we all can see. But to me, part of what can really extend a losing streak is when even the good bluffs don't work. And I think that this bluff has it all 
it's the ideal scare card and the way I've played the hand really feels like I just made something. So, uh, but yeah, he's still called and I don't know. Does he also call with eights? The hand I was almost sure he had. I don't know. What do you guys think? Would you have uh, fired in that spot in my shoes? Tweet me at Clayton comic and let me know what you think about that hand where I lost a fortune with four high. All right, so let's do one more for this episode. Uh, This is from a $100 freeze-out that's also part of the Winter Online Circuit Championship, whatever the heck, uh, series that is going on right now and was the reason for my trip to New Jersey. Not only is there a whole Planet Hollywood circuit event going on, there's also this separate thing called the Online Winter whatever. So... Just too much going on all on one site, and I just, I couldn't resist. So I'm there, and it's a $100 freeze-out with a $20,000 guarantee, which is a lot for New Jersey. Blinds are 175 and 350 with a 45 ante. Uh, Hero, Clayton Fletcher, has 10200 which is right around average for this time in the tournament. I think in this event you start with 8,000 so we've been keeping up with the uh, rising average stack our M is around 10 we've got 29 big blinds however you prefer to look at this a terrible and I mean terrible like loose passive calling station type the likes of which are almost now extinct but were very very prominent on WSOP.com let's say last April or May Uh, This is one of the few remaining true fishy fish, if you will. Uh, Just He likes to play poker as though it's a slot machine. He's going to see the flop no matter what. He's limping in under the gun with 11K behind. Folds to us in the hijack. Hero with queen of clubs, queen of diamonds. So with pocket queens here and our original limper, I decide to put in a very big raise to $1,600. So he limped for $350. Nobody else did anything yet. And I'm in the hijack with Queens. I just make it $1,600. So the reason why I'm doing this, well, number one, obviously value. (laughs) Queens is a very strong hand. Yeah, of course, it's possible that this loose player decided to do the old, I'm going to limp in and then back raise with pocket aces. I mean, I don't worry about everything when I play poker. And maybe if I did, my losing streak wouldn't have continued for as long as it has. (laughs) But I certainly don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, I don't want to raise with queens because beware the limper. I'm not going to beware this limper because I've seen him limp with such a wide range of hands. He's probably playing like 75% of all the hands he's dealt. So this guy could literally have any two suited here. And he's Liable to even call a big raise with it because that's how he approaches Texas Hold'em. So I want to raise for value. I think that I can get called by much, much worse. And I also want to isolate him. I want to I want to discourage the other players at the table from trying to get involved in my pot against this opponent. I want to play heads up in position in an inflated pot against the worst player at the table and one of the worst players in New Jersey. So that's isolation. Also, raising bigger sets up a more favorable SPR if I do manage to get 
heads up against this opponent. Like this big raise here, if he calls it, that's going to be SPR of two, which is great when we flop uh, anything good with our pocket queens. So those are all the reasons why I made such a big raise. And to my delight, the only caller was that original limper. So we got what we wanted. We're heads up in position. We have the effective stack. This guy has us very, very ever so slightly covered. Uh, there is now 4,100 in the pot and our stack is the effective stack 8,600. So the flop comes king of clubs, jack of hearts, deuce of spades, king, jack, deuce, rainbow, hero holding the queens. Uh, the limper donk leads right into us for 2050, exactly half the pot. Now on this site, for those who don't play on WSOP.com, there is a half pot button. So uh, surely he likes to click buttons and he clicked a button right there. So what does this donk lead mean? Well, it could be almost anything. Uh, our opponent could have middle pair. He could have a pair of deuces. Um... He could have a straight draw, something like ace-10 or queen-10, but queen-10 is pretty hard for him to have when we have two of the queens. Um, of course, it could be a king. You will see this sometimes, especially from these kind of uh, you know unskilled recreational type of amateur players. You will occasionally see the donk lead into the big raise with just top pair, Um but you can discount that a little bit because they will sometimes check raise with that hand, not worrying that we could actually have them beat with ace king or pocket aces. I think overall it's mostly going to be something like middle pair or worse. And he kind of wants to bet and see where he's at, which as we all know is a terrible strategy. The information you get from your bets designed to get information is hardly ever worth the chips that you lose getting that information. So uh, we decided to just call here. I think raising is also okay because this opponent is such a station. We can continue to get action. But with the SPR of two, there's nothing wrong with just calling because it's going to be pretty easy to get all in on either the turn or the river, depending on how things shake out. So uh, we just call. And now with uh, 8,200, in the pot and hero with only 6,500 behind. The turn comes the four of hearts. So our board is now king, jack, deuce, four with two hearts. The villain checks this time, which really means he doesn't have a king. Uh, these guys, if they're going to donk with the king on the flop, they're going to bet again with that same king on the turn on such a safe turn card. So... The fact that he slows down tells me he basically has a jack or worse. Um, he could still theoretically have something like maybe 10-9. I'm trying to figure out what draws he could have. I mean, it's a rainbow flop, and queen-10 is the most obvious draw, but we have a queen, so it's less likely he has that. I think most of the time he's going to show up with a, a jack here or possibly even a pair between jacks and deuces. Again, trying to see where I'm at on the flop and now checking on the turn. Now, the problem with betting on the turn is when he has a weak hand, like, you know, bottom pair or uh, pocket fives or something like that, we could lose him 
here on the turn because he might be afraid that we're going to bet again on the river. I decided to check back with the intention of shoving every river except possibly an ace. Now, the reason I don't want us to shove on an ace is not because I'm worried that the ace will have me beat, although, of course, sometimes it will. It's more so that I just don't think I can get maximum value for my hand anymore because of the two overcards to my hand that are also going to be two overcards to our opponent's hand in all likelihood. So we would have to regroup in the case of an ace or possibly if the jack pairs, because I think a lot of his range will be jack X, especially jack X suited. So because of that, I don't really want to see another jack come off. Although I think if it does, he's not going to be able to check to me again. He's going to have to bet it. And then I would probably have to consider actually folding my hand against this player although I wouldn't against many of you. <laughs> so uh, we don't have to worry about it because the river is the nine of spades for a final board of king, jack, deuce, four, nine, with no flush. Now the nine of spades, if I didn't have pocket queens, the nine of spades would be a bigger concern for us because, of course, the queen 10 did get there. But again, we blocked that hand so hard. I mean, of course, it's possible that he has queen 10, but his range has so many other hands in it that are easier for him to have. And because the queen 10 is not the only hand that he would have played this way, I need to put more emphasis on the likelihood that he's got a jack or, like I said before, maybe like a hand like pocket fives that limped in, then called the raise, then donk led into us for no reason at all on king jack deuce and then checked and we did not bet the turn. So we still keep all those hands alive here on the river, which is a nine. And our opponent checks again. And because the plan was to shove, unless it's a jack or an ace, we shove and get snap called by jack of spades, seven of spades. So we win a very, very healthy pot in this situation because we identified our opponent's most likely mistake calling too much, and then did everything in our power to exploit that mistake over bet for value. I didn't fear the king. I didn't fear the straight. I knew that my opponent could call with much worse than pocket queens, and we got paid. So what do these two hands have in common? The big takeaway from both of these hands is that people don't like to fold rivers. <laughs> so we tried to bluff the river in the first hand, and we got value in the second hand. And in both hands, our opponents called on the river. Now, that's not just a sample size of two that we're going to take and run with. But if you think about it from your own experience at the table. You're sitting there and somebody decides to bet on the river. And you know that you don't have to worry about seeing any more cards. What you have is what you have. It is much easier to call on the river than it is on the turn and this applies, of course, more the more deep stacked you are. But even in these situations, just the fact that the hand is over and there's only one more thing to do and then you can know the whole story, what exactly your opponent had. Players cannot resist that river bet. And I saw this over and over last weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I played so many tournaments in New Jersey. People don't fold on the end. So... 
that's something I'm going to take to my next trip to New Jersey and in the ACR streets for the immediate future. Bluffing on the river, even when it's a perfect scare card like that King of Hearts, might be worth a second thought. Well, that'll do it for this episode. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. It really does help us and help the cause of TPE. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.